The Akkad and Koka Report, episode number 31. Welcome to the Akkad and Koka Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Akkad and Koka Report. I'm Michelle Akkad in San Francisco, and joining me from Philadelphia is my co-host, Dr. Anish Koka. Our topic today can, be, can only be of great interest, not just to physicians in our audience, but to anyone who is concerned about the mental health of doctors. We will be talking about physician burnout, which has um, uh, risen to the fore of public health issues in recent years. Physician burnout has attained epidemic proportions. It is highest among all professions, and new research indicates that doctors commit suicide at a rate that is twice that of the gen- general population leading to a loss of approximately one physician per day in the United States. And it's not only doctors who are at risk. Patients, too, may suffer the consequences, as medical errors have now been linked to the issue of physician depression and burnout. Uh, What the actual cause or causes of this epidemic are remains a hotly contested topic. But with us are two distinguished guests who have recently published a highly provocative essay in Stat News, an essay whose whose uh, thesis has resonated with many doctors who have sensed an insight that may have been ignored in the more mainstream narratives and theories about the burnout epidemic. Wendy Dean is a psychiatrist who is Senior Vice President of uh, Program Operations at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. And Simon Talbot is an Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School in the the, uh, Brigham Hospital's Division of Plastic Surgery. Wendy and Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's Thank good you. to be here. Okay. So, you know, we'll, um, let, let me ask you maybe uh, one at a time, uh, perhaps you, Wendy, to tell us a little bit um, how you became interested in this issue of burnout, because I don't think neither you nor Simon uh, are uh, in academia, you know, occupied with uh, publishing or writing about burnout. And, and then I'm, I realize that I'm using the term the term burnout, which you have some disagreement with in your piece, but I'm using it right now because it's what people commonly associate is the term that people commonly associate when they talk about these issues. And uh, so, Wendy, what uh, what got you to to be interested in uh, physician burnout? So, I have been working in military medicine for the past nine years supporting military medical research. And in the process of that, one of the most prominent um, funding programs has been in suicide prevention in the military because there was a big campaign where the, the leadership in the military recognized that suicide in uh, active duty military and recent veterans was substantially higher than the general population. And I started thinking about, I I read about a physician suicide and it started me thinking, I wonder how that compares because it's it's also a high stress field. It's a field where you lose people on a regular basis. And when I did the math, I sort of did the back of the envelopes math and it came out shocking to me. And I started thinking, well, if this is the case, if, if 
we really are, if physicians really are in the same category as the military, who's paying attention to it? Okay. And then I started reading a little bit about burnout and went from there. Great. We'll, we'll continue to explore it. Let me give Simon maybe a chance to introduce himself and, and, uh, and tell us also um, how All he right, got Thank to you. Well, well, my story is, is that having spent um, uh, time working both overseas and now in the United States, I've, as I continued my career, I've noticed frustration and symptoms of burnout, people with depersonalization and, and, and lack of empathy and, and, and frankly frustration um, in, in many colleagues, in many different areas within uh, my work. And my concern as I've gone through talking to people uh, is that the ideas of a lack of resilience didn't really resound with people. They didn't explain uh, why people were feeling burnt out and they didn't explain how to fix the problem for people. And so as Wendy and I began talking about the suicide issue and the issue of, for want of a better term, burnout, uh, we started to hit on this idea that there was more to burnout than just a lack of resilience. And uh, that's where this concept of moral injury comes in. Okay. So, so we'll get into, into your, your uh, viewpoint. But again, give us a little bit, uh, one of you, maybe Wendy, um, sort of the, uh, the overall uh, epidemic uh, uh, features. Uh, when did people start talking about physician burnout? You know, how many years ago? And is it increasing? Has it been always been high but underrecognized? What do we know about uh, those features? So I, th I think uh, physician burnout as a term and as a concept probably has been talked about for a decade or more. And it's been an academic area of study for at least that long. But despite really closely following it and and institutions like the Mayo Clinic acknowledging it and trying to address the what seems to be a growing epidemic, um, more and more the, the 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 numbers and the percentage of physicians who are suffering and struggling with these concepts or the, these um, symptoms of the depersonalization and demoralization and um, lack of enthusiasm that has continued to grow steadily not exponentially but it has steadily progressed to the point where there are almost 50% of physicians who suffer at least some symptoms okay and and uh, what uh, so what, what is this attributed to in the mainstream literature so I think in for the most part, most of the literature perceives it as a failure of physicians' um, resilience. So the, that physicians aren't attending to their own self-care and they aren't, um, they, they aren't working sufficiently in teams and they aren't, um, they, they aren't relying on um, sort of good career hygiene or, or or good, um, uh, good, really good self-care. Right, good self-care. Yeah, to, I to think, that. I, uh, go ahead. I, was gonna say, I think there's one other thing. I think there's one other thing that comes up when you talk to people colloquially about this, and that that is that the term burnout suggests that people are working too hard, and 
we've had some feedback from people that say, uh, we, we don't understand. Why don't people just work less hard and take more time out with their families and things like that? And I think that the concept that this is about just too much work is not entirely encapsulating the fact that uh, you can work very hard without necessarily burning out, but you can also work not necessarily nearly as hard, but burn out due to some of the frustrations and catch-22s in our system. Right. You know, to, so um, uh, to your point, I just have uh, with me the, the current issue of the, uh, the local medical county, San Francisco Medical County uh, magazine, and they have a, a piece on, on burnout on, and, and how to prevent burnout. And they're quoting, they have a table quoting, you know, research from some academic center here. And uh, so, so the prescription here to prevent burnout, uh, I'll give you some examples. They say, Knitting, you know, why don't physicians do some a little knitting activity, yoga, healthy cooking, coping with stress, right? So, so book club, uh, ad adult coloring, <laughs> you know, depressing. So I, I, uh, you know, I, I, anybody who's, you know, either met somebody who's uh, suicidal or treated somebody who's suicidal or, or depressed or whatnot knows that you don't. You know, cooking and knitting, and it's all, I mean, I have nothing against knitting and cooking, but it's, <laughs> you know, you get a sense that there, there, something's missing here, right? There, there's, um, um, it, it, it's, go ahead. I think this gets to our point, which is that uh, yoga, healthy cooking, having hobbies outside of medicine, these are all things that physicians do. And physicians are incredibly resilient. You don't get through medical school, you don't get through undergraduate and, med and medical school and residency without building in a substantial amount of resilience. And so doing more yoga and more um, knitting and more healthy cooking and going on retreats, um, I think physicians would all like to think that that's going to work and they try very hard, but really you're wedging in more requirements around the edges of already very precious time. Right. Away from that. I think we would also, I think one of the other things is that we, we very much acknowledge that healthy exercise and healthy eating and spending time with your family and the activities you enjoy are, are, are honorable, worthwhile things to do. And there's certainly ways to manage burnout uh, to some degree but they don't hit at the core root of what's going on. They don't hit at the reason why people are feeling burnt out and they don't hit at the reason why uh, people have what we're now talking about as a moral injury. Okay, so yeah. tell us. Go yeah. ahead, Anish. Yeah. You know, I, 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 was, I, I, loved the, uh, I loved the piece uh, so much because um, it, um, it really encapsulated something that I, uh, that, that I felt, but, you know, you, you guys did a great job of... Uh, clarifying it in words this idea that um that what's going on and what maybe a better way of describing burnout is this idea that it's uh, that physicians you know uh, are um um have a are, are failing to connect in a way with uh, with with their patients and with with their community that um uh, that that was kind of the 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 injury so um it's not um and and that that and you nicely connected that disconnect with the inability to provide 
uh, you know, high quality care, the inability to do what it is most of us went into this do, which is to heal. Um, and so I thought that was um, really, uh, really, really wonderful. And I wonder if, um, you know, so immediately, of course, you know, my, my bias is that um, I see I see a lot of um, uh, protocol method driven uh, uh, medicine, and it, and, it, and that kind of <laughs> seemed to uh, kind of go hand in hand, right? Meaning, when you have um, uh, you have physicians that are being asked repeatedly to kind of follow uh, fo- follow X, Y, and Z protocol, and therefore they aren't quite connected to uh, patients, and not just protocols when they relate to um, whether it be sepsis or whatnot, but you're asking um, physicians to ha- have priorities that aren't necessarily related to the individual patient in front of them. Um, so whether it be, you know, checking boxes for, you know, whatever, you know, aspirin use or statin use, or uh, whether it be making sure that you code as many ICD-10 codes as you can. So your expected mortality numbers, uh, uh, you know, uh, are, are appropriate. So you'll get the right U.S. News World report ranking. And all of these things, I've, uh, it seems to me, you know, when these and, you know, physician leaders or administrators stand up in front of the, um, uh, you know, uh, stand up in front of the physicians and go through these things that we have to do to have to, to, to you know, to make for a healthy health system. Um, it seems that we're, you know, physicians just seem to uh, go along with it. So I wonder if part of what we need is an enlightenment on the part of physicians to uh, not necessarily go along with these type, this type of system-based care that doesn't necessarily prioritize the individual. Meaning, are we in some senses um, uh, part of the moral injury to ourselves? I mean, are, are we infl- is this a self-inflicted wound? Let me, um, Anish, I'd like to interrupt here uh, before, but Wendy, why don't you, um, I think Anish touched on, on, on the thesis of your essay, but w- can you give it to us uh, in your own words um, uh, exactly where you think the problem uh, arises, this, this problem of burnout? So I think where it really comes from is is this sense that physicians are trying to serve too many masters. So we're caught in a double, triple, quadruple bind of trying to satisfy the requirements and the needs of our patients who should come first, but also the insurer and their needs, our health insurance system and its needs and constraints and requirements, and also our own self-interest. Because at this point, oftentimes a physician has a quota that they have to meet, or they have other, they have other uh, constraints that drive their bottom line. And so trying to satisfy, uh, you can't just satisfy one of those. You can't just attend to the patient and do a good job. You have to attend to the patient and the insurer and the health care system right. and your employer and your own your right. own self and family. And and the advantage of that uh, thesis is that uh, over the last uh, two three decades, the number of competing allegiances has increased. So I mean, physicians have found themselves more and more in a situation where they have to satisfy more and more third parties or outside parties besides just the patient. Correct. Right. 
Um, yeah, to go back to An- Anisha's point, you know, there, there, there are so many different competing interests uh, from the electronic medical record to the insurance to the protocols that you mentioned, prior authorizations for the insurance, uh, a requirement for RVUs, maximizing um, uh, or minimizing readmissions, reducing hospital stays, improving online reviews. And while some of these things are done with good intention and some of them aren't intrinsically bad, of course, a, a great electronic medical record system should save us time and improve patient care. The catch is that most of these things start to erode the physician-patient relationship. And it's eroding that relationship that makes it hard for, for physicians to feel like they're really healing their patients. It takes away from their uh, sense of, uh, of, of healing patients. And, and that's where this comes from. That's where this well, injury comes from that we term burnout. And I think the other... The, the other um, side effect of that erosion and patients are, I think patients are becoming more and more aware that we are not always attending to their own best interests because they are realizing that we have these other masters that we have to serve. And that is, that's causing them to not trust us. Right. Right. And so it's really coming to a, a, a horrible erosion of that, doctor physician uh, that doctor patient relationship right so, so why so why are we so i mean are, are, are we complicit in in this meaning why, why do we i'm constantly surprised that we go along with uh, so much of this meaning uh, why, why are we yeah before we get there it's, it's yeah. a very good point uh, anish but i, I want to uh, complete here the the thesis so why call it moral injury and where does that concept come from moral injury is this concept that was developed to explain what happens to soldiers in war when they do something that goes against their moral fiber. It's a transgression against their moral beliefs. And physicians train for a decade or more specifically to take care of patients. And when you ask them every single day to make decisions that countervail against their patient's best interests in in the interest of insurer or the employer or the system, the hospital system, or any other number of competing interests, that that becomes that is that goes against the Hippocratic Oath and it, it becomes a morally injurious event. Right. Again I, I, and again. Uh, correct. I, I think that's a really, really interesting um, idea and concept. And and so moral injury, um, you mentioned that in your article um, uh, is a fairly recent concept that introduced in military medicine to to explain um, things like uh, PT- PTSD and, and and that sort of thing. And and um, uh, I don't know if it's your article or the, the article that you refer to about moral injury mentions that the moral dimension of of the profession, at least in the military, was overlooked as an explanation for. PTSD and, and 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 chronic depression and that sort of thing, and um, uh, but you're right. You know, we just had our, our um, we just did an episode not too long ago uh, with a philosopher about Hippocratic Hippocratic ethics and how they have been eroded um, from medicine and how medicine is intrinsically an ethical endeavor. Right? You really cannot separate the technical aspect of practicing medicine from the ethical commitment that comes with it. And, um, and, and so, so you, you very nicely illustrate this sort of this conflict and this, this separation that is becomes, um, 
uh, sort of inevitable and, and, a, and a, a part of day-to-day um, uh, practice for every doctor in our current healthcare system. Correct. And I think to Anisha's point, though, if you don't have the language and if you, if you don't have the language to put on what's happening to you in that, in that context of moral injury, it's impossible to understand what's happening and then to be able to change it. We found this um, as we were writing this essay through several of our drafts that um, as we showed our, our drafts to people, they kept saying, well, we don't really understand you're reiterating the idea of burnout. And it wasn't until we uh, changed the language and started using the term moral injury that people started to understand that we weren't just talking about a lack of resilience among physicians. Right. Um, so Anish, you were asking, uh, I think a very good question. Why, why are physicians... Uh going along with this yeah because you know the, the, you know when you're talking about it's, it's a great analogy uh when you talk about the military but of course these are these are folks that are being sent to war i mean they don't have a choice they're tra- they're well not, they're not conscripted anymore but um you know they're uh, they're kind of uh, put into these arenas put in these theaters um where people are shooting at them and they have uh, you know this, this stuff going on here um yes we are uh, going to an, uh, an arena where we have you know we're surrounded by all this medical uh you know, very sick patients and patients calling us at all hours of the night uh, and you know, that kind of mental load of uh, dealing with uh, somebody that's sick. But, you know, I, I, I just, I, I just would, would love to, I mean, understand why it is we as a profession seem to be going, going along with the overlords who prioritize, clearly they're, I mean, it's, it's obvious to all of us, right, that, that the, these priorities that are being set for us, whether it be Clicking X, Y, and Z on an EHR, or whether it be, uh, you know, uh, making sure we code code better or whatnot. All, all these things that are not patient-facing um, things that we went into medicine to do, and uh, that don't have a that isn't, um, you know, that where healing is not is not the uh, uh, intention uh, or the priority. Certainly, um, uh, you know, wh- why why do we as as a mass of physicians simply go along with injuring ourselves? Nisha, I think there's I think there's three ways to three ways to look at that. I think the first is that there are relatively few choices. When you're a physician, you're not uh, given an enormous number of choices that allow you to avoid uh, the system that we're in. I think secondly, some of this happens very insidiously. The vast, vast, vast majority of physicians go into medicine with every good intention. And if you talk to almost every medical student, they say they're doing this because they want to help people. And I think that that, uh, that uh, keeps some people blind to what's going on to some degree. And I think until recently, we haven't talked about this. This is the third thing, when we don't have the language to talk about or we, or we don't acknowledge it explicitly, um, then it uh, tends to be easy to walk into this without realizing it. I also think that just one other quick thing is that much like a, an 18-year-old recruit going to war, the reality that the idea of what you're going into for either medicine or for um, the defense um, is very different than the reality of the practice of it. And I think neither is prepared, neither the soldier nor the physician is prepared for the actuality of what they get into. Right. And, and perhaps before we, we get into how to better prepare ourselves, um, is this unique to uh, to the the U.S. or uh, what's the physician burnout or moral injury issue in other countries? 
where possibly they may have uh, similar uh, competing allegiances? So I think the short answer to that is, although neither of us work outside of the US, we had a, a deluge of emails after this article was published and read internationally, and we certainly had a large number of uh, communication with people in other health systems and in other countries who said that this resonated with them as well, including quite a number who were suffering exactly the same problems that we're, we're dealing with here. Right. So I think the short answer is, yeah, this is, this is not unique to the U.S. We certainly have some things that are unique to the U.S. and certainly some things that make this trickier, uh, some of the financial arrangements for sure. Uh, but there's there are certainly uh, competing allegiances in many systems. Is this something do you think that's that's uh, unique to uh, large health systems? Meaning, is it something that um, would you uh, would you say that this is something that uh, or you know say employed employed physicians uh, physicians employed by large health systems specifically? Is that is this do you think it's more of a problem um, in in that arena? No. I think the more competing allegiances you have, the the harder it is. But I think whenever you have aspects of your practice or aspects of your um, profession where your ability to care for patients is uh, is impaired or taken away from you, or however you want to put it, things that impact the physician-patient relationship, this happens. So it's certainly worse when you've got significant financial implications or professional implications, but I think it's in many arenas. I live in a rural part of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and uh, we're in the midst of a primary care physician crisis because most of our physicians are leaving. Yeah, it's, it, it seems interesting. You know, the one kind of um, spot where folks uh, seem to be um, happier um, uh, appears to be these small little, uh, these, these little groups that are springing up um, this um, where physicians are kind of unplugging from the current system and the incentives that the current system, you know, the, these perverse intent incentives that the current system kind of forces these 15 minute visits and making sure that you check off boxes so you don't get a penalty for Medicare. And so these groups that are kind of emerging um, uh, which, who you know, are essentially are cash pay groups. You know, the direct primary care movement. I don't know if you, you folks are have heard of it or or, or what, but but it, it would seem like the, these are these are folks that um, when they unplug from the system and therefore unplug from these perverse incentives we were talking about, and now all of a sudden they're incredibly committed. You know, it's just them and the and the patient, <laughs> and no 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 insurance folks. They run their own practice. Um, it, do you think that uh, is is at least not not that there's any one particular solution uh, to this, but do you think that's uh, one path that kind of uh, would make you immune to uh, uh, some of the uh, injury here? So that's how I practiced psychiatry for about a decade, mm -hmm. and it it certainly makes it much easier to practice, but it it is almost impossible to completely disconnect from the insurance system because patients, they pay for their insurance. They want to be able to use their insurance where they can. And if it's just simply an office-based practice and you're just seeing simple conditions or preventative care, then it's a reasonable model. But I think when it starts, when care becomes much more complex, it becomes harder and harder to continue that model. 
Okay, so so let's uh, that brings us to to the next uh, maybe aspect or of uh, either prevention or of this moral injury, because one could uh, think about it in two ways. Is one is the one that uh, Anish alluded to is that trying to uh, to unplug from the system, but that's limited so long as there is a system, a large system. It's unli- it's 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 limited in its um, in its effect and reach. And the other one, I think, is something that you suggest, but I want you to elaborate a little bit more. Is to make the leaders of the system more aware of this, so that somehow they, um, uh, you know, uh, first acknowledge this uh, conflicts of uh, these conflicts of interest and then deal with them. But I'm not sure what that looks like. Uh, what what are your thoughts, or have you do you have thoughts about uh, you know beyond just recognizing what the issue is? Well, I, I think that um, absolutely the first thing is is acknowledging the problem and recognizing the problem and accepting that this isn't something that can be ignored, um, and so accepting that there's a human cost to this and frankly a patient cost to it. I think is the first step especially with these large health systems where that's important. I think we um, need to make sure that patients know that this is going on because they need to be able to uh, ask for care which is independent of some of these uh, conflicting allegiances. We need to make sure that insurers uh, be as moral and ethical as they can possibly be uh, within the bounds of being a business enterprise. and. We need to do our best to have hospitals recognize that there's actually a, a, a business cost to them not acknowledging this. Um, taking care of your doctors is also taking care of your patients. And taking care of your doctors ultimately saves you money in terms of physician turnover and patient care. And so giving those physicians respect and autonomy to what they to, to do what they, they, they know to be best um, and to make good Evidence-based, if necessary, rational and safe decisions um, is 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 part of keeping those doctors and part of uh, taking good care of patients. So I think yes, you do need to ask your question. Yes, you do need to um, start by acknowledging it, but then giving these opportunities uh, is a very important part of creating a, a win-win situation, creating a system where uh, physicians do well and patients do well as well. So I think the you know the 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 problem is you're going to run into the uh, the uh, the buzzsaw of the physician MBA or just the MBA you know I, I'll just read you a I mean they just think completely differently from what you just what you just said so you know there's this whole thing about how do we how do when hospitals buy uh, practices uh, typically the practices lose more money than they would think and they're like uh, you know so the question to hospitals, you know, the vexing problem to hospital executives is how do we make how do we make money out of these freaking physicians that we've hired and now they're like lazy and sitting on their butts, right? And I'll just I'm just going to read you this fantastic paragraph in terms of how this particular uh, physician MBA leader I don't know if he's an MBA he's a leader he he's the one that turned it around and he figured out how to make the these darn physicians profitable, right? Our first action. <laughs> Our first action was to take control of the schedule away from the providers and to transfer the responsibility of booking patients to office managers who answered to the director of operations. Our second action was to increase the hours of operation by pushing the opening time to 7 a.m. and adding extended hours for most weekdays as well as Saturdays. We also opened the schedule, the same day requests and walk-in appointments, and eventually allowed patients to self-schedule throughout our patient portal. 
As a result of these steps, the proportion of time the providers spent on direct patient care increased to, from 59% to 95% of their contracted hours. I mean, <laughs> this is a, new... a fabulous short-term fix. That is a yeah. fabulous fix for this month, next month, maybe even the rest of this year. Yeah. But in the long run, they'll turn over physicians. That'll cost them a lot of money. They'll have patients who eventually recognize that they're not getting such good care. They may get after-hours care, but it won't be done as well. And their time slots will be reduced to shorter times. And in the long run, that's a fallacy. It's it's that's the problem. Is it's a it's a short term fix. That's a wonderful right. wonderful way of bringing it. And because he specifically the, the hilarious thing is, is uh, later on in the article, this this gentleman uh, goes on to say that you know we in, we implemented this stuff and initially there was some resistance, um, and but we were firm about it. And you know twenty percent we let go or you know they 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 refused to comply and so they went away somewhere. And uh, we replaced them with fresh new young bodies, and you know, the, and, and because we are, we had changed the culture to be so systematic, we got some of the top recruits from all these different places. <laughs> it's, it's, I think that also uh, demonstrates another important point, which is that within our system, there are some senior people who are extremely valuable, who have knowledge and insight and intuition that cannot be replaced by new recruits, and. Right. If we alienate those people, we're losing an enormous and very valuable resource. Yeah. If you want to look at it in business terms, they are a resource which will walk who will walk out on us, and we need these people. Um, yeah. And so it's not just about warm bodies; it's about right. quality of the body. But, you know, the, the the problem over and over again. I'm just in my short, you know, I'm reasonably. You know, I've been practicing for about eight years or so, and just in that short period of time. I've seen over and over again, uh, you know, this, this idea that the physician as widget, right? Meaning you'll have a very successful, say, heart failure group and some new person, some new head of some administrative thing will show up and will be not happy with X, Y, and Z and will start making some type of draconian rules and it will destroy that entire heart failure, heart failure group. And this group of highly experienced, they've been doing this for 15, 20 years, they have deep referral lines, networks. You know, successful program by by most by most metrics, and suddenly within two years, everyone has left, and they're replaced by these much younger, much less experienced folks, and in that the program is destroyed for a decade. Right, but you know, in defense, or, is, of the, or worse yet, or, or worse yet, they don't leave; they stay because they're trapped because right. their family is at right. a point where they don't right. want to leave, and they they unplug, they disengage, and their patients suffer. Right. As a right. Right. But you know, in defense of the uh, NBA, NBA guy and and the bottom line, I mean, the the, the truth is the the these groups that's you know uh, on the surface were functional and whatnot. Uh, at the same time, were financially unsustainable. I mean, there, there's right. Uh, and you know, the problem is that it, it seems to be inherent in in a system of third party payments and third party regulation and 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 whatnot. That these conflicts are going to be going to be there, and and they affect you know the competing allegiances are not just um, uh, negative towards the physician, because the physician is also benefiting from this arrangement, right? I mean th there is um, uh, at the end of the day some job security and some income security of being a physician in the system um, that that physicians benefit from, and likewise for the patients. For the patients, there's you know, there seems to be a benefit in thinking or assuming or, or uh, holding on to the promise, whether the promise is, you know, true or false, but the promise that somebody else will pay for the care, right? 
so so it seems to me that this whole idea that uh that we can have systems of um you know somebody else uh, making decisions somebody else making you know footing the bill and whatnot you know unless we deal with that uh, I, I don't know that we can have any any kind of uh, uh, solution you, you know there's a sentence in your paper that I, I really like at the very end it says a truly free market of insurance and provide insurers and providers one without financial obligations being pushed to providers would allow for self-regulation and patient-driven care and I think it's a little bit uh, ambiguous here, and, and, and I don't want you to commit to any kind of particular solution. But, but in my mind, I mean, I think, you, so, so we see this problem of uh, competing allegiances and burnout uh, in different countries, not just in the US, but other places as, as well. And we see all these healthcare systems to various degrees sort of uh, incurring more and more debt, debt and being in, on an unsustainable path. And that goes not just for the UK and Canada and here, but also for Switzerland. You know, we had a guy, you know, who was telling us about the, the healthcare system of Switzerland. That's also unsustainable. And, and, and there, you know, there's more of the MBA types, you know, who are trying to, to regiment uh, uh, how, how physicians are behaving and so forth. So uh, I'm not very optimistic uh, about just, you know, uh, acknowledging the problem and then letting leaders you know, help us uh, figure out a solution. I'm wondering, uh, Wendy, wh what is the military doing about its own situation? Or uh, is it uh, doing anything as of yet, or is it too early to tell? Doing it, it about its own situation of, uh, of the position of with the, with the, No, with the moral injury question, which, you know, that was the analogy, which uh, so, you mentioned since uh, the soldiers are... are I right. Mean, seems, I mean, now there's a realization that there's an ethical component to this moral injury, to this, to this uh, PTSD, right? So it, it um, <laughs> I think moral injury is a very complex problem and it does not lend itself well to uh, research that happens in aliquots of three to five years. And so I, I think the, the military has acknowledged that moral injury is, a, is an issue. The conversation has been rejuvenated over the past three to four years. And there are small pockets of, of treatment focusing on the moral injury uh, from the recent conflict. But right. we certainly aren't, we, the, the, the military has not gotten out in front of it and doesn't have good solutions. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that there's a parallel, because just like, to me, the healthcare systems are, you know, at a fundamental level, in a way, unjust uh, in, in what they're trying to achieve. You know, I, th I think, and again, maybe I'm, I'm taking a politi political stance here, but I think we, uh, countries are participating more and more in unjust wars, and, and therefore the soldiers are bearing the brunt uh, at you know, at, at the level of the conflict and, 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 and being sent there of, of, you know, of these moral injuries. And, and so unless, unless we take a step back and look, if, if it's a system problem, really the, the, it's the, the, the system that needs treatment and, and, uh, and, and that's where the, 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 the solution needs to come from. Um, well, at the very least, yeah. but think, yeah. but, but, go ahead, uh, Wendy. Uh, sorry. So, so I think, I think both of these are analogous, that it, the military is just coming to the language to, to speak about moral injury 
as our physicians. And until we start talking about the right diagnosis, it's very hard to come to a treatment. Right. And, and I don't want to take away from actually your, your very valuable contribution. I think this, this is very valuable. So, so you're right. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm saying here that I'm not optimistic and so forth, but it's, uh, you're right. I, I do want to say that this is, um, it certainly is the place to start and a very, very important place and a very, uh, a big departure from what we've been hearing so far, you know, for many years. At the very, I mean, you know, um, Wendy and Simon, you don't know that Michelle is an anarchist who wants to blow up uh, everything. So you didn't realize that on the show. But at the very least, you know, I, I, I really, really think. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think a, a lot of this relates to um, physicians losing control of, uh, of of the system. Meaning, you know, it's it's now these decisions have been taken out of the hands of, you know, twenty year veterans who have been doing this for. Who've been, who, you know, who are physicians, who are healers, who understand what the priorities are. If, if they are physicians that are in leadership positions, the physicians very much so have marching orders to understand that, hey, what we have to do year to year is increase the number of outpatient visits by 20% year to year. Um, those are the metrics now that the chairmen of X, Y, and Z uh, kind of, you know, walk, walk the line of. And if you don't walk that type of line in this environment, then, you know, there's somebody else that's waiting to take that, take the reins. So, uh, you know whether we blow up system or not. I I I really think that you know physicians in whatever way regaining control uh, 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 is, is going to be key in terms of trying to trying to help help this uh, now. But the problem, of course, is that given given the, the given the the dollars and the, fi the financial stuff at play, we also then would have to take ownership for that, and that's where. You know, we get into a, this political argument about how exactly one goes about doing that. But you know, outside of that, I, I also noticed that um, I, I'm on this theme of physicians uh, injuring ourselves. I noticed that there's a ton of fractious stuff going on just within the physician community itself, right? Um, I, I notice, and I'm sure you guys have noticed, uh, Wendy, uh, especially that physician su su suicide, for instance, has a remarkable predilection for uh for males is that is that what you've is that mm, is that correct actually no so? no you don't think so so uh, no actually it's, uh so yes there are more men who complete but hmm. when you compare that you, when you compare the male uh incidents in physicians versus um the population, in the general population. And you compare, correct and you compare women uh, the women are about two and a half times more likely to complete than in the general population. Men are about one and a half times, a little bit more than that. Mm, so really, female physicians are killing themselves at a much higher rate. I see. So there are many, many, many more male physicians that actually complete suicide, but you're saying the rate of it is 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 much less. Meaning by, so, by, num by numbers, there there's, you know, there's like, it's like seven to one or something. There's seven times. I mean, no, it's hard to get at these numbers also, but Pamela Weibel has a site and at correct. least her database or whatnot, you know, it looks like it's seven to one, meaning there are seven times as many male physicians that actually complete suicide versus male physicians. But you're saying when you relative to the general population, uh, I guess because there are many more male, male physicians uh, out there practicing, that, that rate is, uh, is, is still more for women. No, so the, the suicide rate in the general population is higher for men right. than it is for women. I and see. So, oh, I see. So, I see. But, so if, you, if you compare 
if you compare rates, physician, male physicians and the male population, uh, male physicians is slightly high, you know, maybe one and a half, one and three quarters higher than the general population. For women, it is two and a half times higher hmm. okay. than the general population. Right. I see. Um, you know, it is a complex issue. I just want to, you know, before we, we close, I want to come back to, the, to this issue that uh, nevertheless, uh, it seems plausible that, uh, I know Pam Weibel, we, we're speaking of her, she, she, she focuses a lot on the training and the work conditions being, being terrible. And medical school is pretty, yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, many of us survive it, but it, it's pretty uh, uh, silly, uh, you know, brutal in a silly way, <laughs> right? Um, do you think that um, uh, there's something, you know, that could be done there or is there, or do you think that it's really, um, it's missing the point to, to focus on, on, on these kinds of uh, work conditions? Certainly, there's, a, there's a, a, an importance about starting early and, and, and making sure that our medical students understand what they're getting into and making sure that they recognize they have a voice and making sure as they go through this that they uh, continue to place the, the physician-patient relationship at the forefront of what they're doing. Um, there's no question that, that, that working at that level is very important. Um, but we do have a lot of education to do for uh, those of us who are well into our careers and people senior to us so that we're all working in the same direction and rowing the same boat. So, yeah, I think it's worthwhile, but it's not the only thing to do. Well, it's, it's been a, a very uh, interesting conversation, uh, uh, Wendy and Simon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'll link, uh, obviously, to your, um, your piece on the show notes at karankoka.com. Uh, uh, for people who haven't read it, uh, I really highly recommend it. I think it's, it's, it's very uh, thought-provoking and I think, I think hopeful because, uh, as you said, it's important to understand what's actually going on. And, uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, perhaps reading more. Do you plan on doing more on this uh, topic uh, in the future, uh, either one of you? Wendy? So, uh, I'll, let Wendy, I'll let Wendy answer. <laughs> so uh, we, being, being surprised by the, um, by the response to this, we decided that we really need to start organizing around it. And so we are setting up a nonprofit and we published our website yesterday. Oh, oh, great. Well, uh, you so know, uh, let us know and we'll link to that as well on the show notes. You can uh, absolutely communicate the, the website or, or you can give it now for people who, uh, is there Let a name? Think, yeah. It's www.moralinjury.healthcare and we'll, we'll get it to you so that you can put it up on the show notes. Okay, that would perfect. be great. Well, very good. Well, we look forward to, uh, to following uh, you there uh, as well and, and see what happens. Well, thank, thank you. you this has been terrific. Okay. Thank you very much. Have a good night. All righty. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.